Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have already overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Are you a fan of the Holy Spirit? John is. John would have uh, understood the Holy Spirit from his studies of the ancient Hebrew text. He would have known that in the beginning there was the we, let us create man in our image, and some interpret that differently, but I still like the interpretation that there's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit saying we're creating people in the image of God. We know that the Spirit hovered over the void and dark and chaotic world that he intentionally created and then began to be involved in the process of, of creating order and beauty. We know that God sent his Spirit to fall upon certain men like Bezalel, and he was given the gift of craftsmanship. Someone like Miriam was given the ability to sing psalms. There was Moses and Joshua and the elders who had the Spirit fall on them, and they were able to lead Israel well and make good judicial decrees. You had the, the judges, those guys, the, the scandals, a lot of them, scandalous, a lot of them, had the Holy Spirit falling on them and empowering them to do everything, like killing a bunch of Philistines at one time with the jawbone of an ass. The Spirit fell upon Saul. The Spirit fell upon David. The Spirit fell upon other kings and the prophets. It just continues on. John would have understood this, and John would have looked back at the Old Testament scriptures, and he would have realized that the Spirit is the one who regenerates, in the words of Ezekiel, that preachers can preach all day long and give you good truth, but you won't understand unless the Spirit comes and does that work of CPR on the heart and opens your eyes and helps you understand and motivates your heart. In the words of Ezekiel, if he breathes life into dead bones... John would have understood exactly that Isaiah said, when the Messiah comes, better days are coming. Why? Because a better king is coming, and with him comes the Spirit of God. And Joel says, when he comes, it's going to be better than ever because he's pouring out his Spirit on all God's sons and daughters. And so John would have grown up understanding his Hebrew text, and he would have been a fan of the Holy Spirit, but, but this he would have also known, that the Holy Spirit fell upon believers, and then took off for a while. And then would fall upon believers and take off for a while. Kind of like the Holy Spirit would come into the Holy of Holies sometimes, and then you'd see him marching out of the temple and over the hill, and he'd be gone for a while. 
So John would have understood all this, but everything changed when theology became practical, when he actually started experiencing it. John met this guy, Jesus. Jesus said, come follow me. I want you to be one of my 12 fellows, my apostles, and we're going to do some great things together. John said, I'm all in. Jesus would have told him, or maybe even introduced him to Mary, who said, let me tell you what the Holy Spirit did to me. I was impregnated by the Holy Spirit that Jesus could be fully God and fully man without the influence of sinful man. John then would have heard maybe John the Baptist tell the story. Yeah, I was out in the wilderness. I was doing my preaching gig, and all of a sudden, Jesus Christ came. And I'm sitting there going, this is incredible. Let me turn the pulpit over to him. I need to be baptized by him. But Jesus said, no, 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 no. It's time for me to be baptized by you. And when I baptized him, John the Baptist would have said, you wouldn't have believed it. The Holy Spirit came down like a dove, landed upon Jesus. All of a sudden, the Father gave his applause from heaven saying, this is my son. And from that point on, Jesus would have told John, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit like no one else without measure. Jesus then said, fellas, you've been following me. It's time for me to send you out. I want you to do some work, but here, receive the Holy Spirit. And John would tell you, the Holy Spirit fell upon me. I was able to preach. I was able to teach. I was able to exercise. I was able to cast out demons, and I was able to heal the lame. John says, that all happened. I know what it feels like to have the Holy Spirit fall on someone and then leave. And so John's a big fan of the Holy Spirit, but this he also knows. Just like God said in the Old Testament, oh, better days are coming. Jesus said, better days are coming. He says, it's going to be even good that I leave because when I leave, I am sending the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the counselor. And what's he going to do? He is going to be like water gushing up within one's soul and out of his soul come streams of living water for the benefit of other people. He's going to guide you into all truth. He's going to bring to remembrance that which you need to know. And so John, as a disciple, gathered with the church after the ascension of Jesus Christ. And what did they do? They went to an upper room, and they waited. Why? Because they're big fans of the Holy Spirit. And they prayed, and then it happened. First in Jerusalem, and then in Samaria, and then in Antioch. Three different times these Pentecostal showers came out, and the Holy Spirit fell upon people. And all that was was one big show, one big display of what happens to every single believer. I was going to say, when one calls upon the name of the Lord, the Holy Spirit comes. No. Before one calls upon the name of the Lord, the Holy Spirit comes. He regenerates your heart. And then what? He never leaves. He moves in. He takes ref residence. And so I like to use four F's quickly, just you can talk about these with me later if you want to. He forms believers. They're born of God. They're born again. John uses this language. The seed of God does this. They're filled. He moves in. He takes up residence. Or in the words of John that we've been reading, he abides with us. We abide with him. Then he fruits. While he's in there, he, it's almost like you're possessed. 
But instead of being possessed by a demon, you're possessed by the Holy Spirit. And just like a demon causes people to act in a demonic fashion, the Holy Spirit causes people to act in a holy fashion. And pretty soon he starts fruiting you with spiritual gifts and with the ability to have love and joy and peace and all of the fruit that are talked about in Galatians 5. So the Holy Spirit forms, fills fruits, and then every now and then when he wants to, he falls upon people still. He gives people the opportunity. Elders may gather together and anoint someone with oil, and you know what might happen? That person might be healed. Or maybe a preacher will stand up and with his natural ability communicate something, and maybe the Holy Spirit will show up and take that which the 2.6 GPA guy in college delivers and make it 4.0 material, all to the glory of God. This is what God does as he forms, fills, fruits, and falls fresh upon people. So John is a big fan. He's a charismatic fan. He believes in the charisma, the grace. That's what that word means. I believe in grace. The grace of the Holy Spirit still falls upon people. But John knows that the Holy Spirit is not the only one around. He's not the only spirit in town. John knows that there are also unholy spirits. Yet he writes in many of his works, the Revelation or the Apocalypse, about the evil one. You can read that in John as well, the Gospel. The evil one is like the prince of the power of the air. The evil one is the one who ultimately hates God more than anyone else. He's the ruler of this world, and the evil one has evil ones. Satan has many, many friends. They're called antichrists in some of his literature, beasts, false prophets, false teachers. And John says, the hellions, they're coming. But he also says what? The hellions are at hand. And you people are surrounded by unholy spirits in the form of heavenly beings and in the form of earthly communicators. And just like the Holy Spirit, the evil one forms people. He, he makes people into his own image. That's why Jesus Christ has no problem calling us children of the devil if we're not saved. And just like the Holy One fills and moves in, so the evil one or his spirits do have the ability, as you see in maybe the demoniac of the Gadarenes or in Mary Magdalene. The, Holy, the evil spirit can move in and actually possess someone who is not of Christ. And just like the Holy Spirit fruits, so the evil one empowers and falls upon and causes people to have sometimes incredible power to do really out-of-this-world supernatural stuff. John knows this, and he knows that sometimes these evil spirits look devilish, like the witch of Endor, or maybe that madman that I talked about, the one who was possessed and would break off chains and would run through the, the tombstones naked. But sometimes they look like angels of light. Sometimes they look like authors, evangelists, and preachers. This is what is happening to John's beloved friends. An unholy spirit is inspiring unholy spirits who are inspiring unholy teachers who are presenting unorthodox messages. 
and John's people, it's all around them. And they're not beyond being influenced by doctrines of demons. So what does John do? He calls his church to discernment, a negative followed by a positive. He looks and he says, do not, well, I want you to notice what he doesn't say, first of all. If you look at your text, he doesn't say discount the Holy Spirit. That's what some of our friends do. So scared are they of charismatic abuses that they discount the Holy Spirit's presence and power today. That's not what he says to do. John Stott would say, don't be suspicious, but don't swallow everything either. Don't deny the reality of the Holy Spirit, but don't be gullible. Don't be naive. Don't ever come to the conclusion that a supernatural show means godly reality. You are to test everything. You are to try everything. You are to do what I do when I sell a car. These days when I sell a car, I don't really want a check unless it's a cashier's check, and I really don't even want your cash unless we're at the bank because I just don't trust anybody anymore. So I show up at a bank, we do the bill of sale there, and even if they hand me a wad of green stuff called cash, I hand it to the teller and say, would you please deposit this in my account? And I watch her run it through the machine, and it goes in my account, and I'm so happy to give the keys away at that time. I'm testing the legitimacy of the claim that this is cash. You have to do this. There is a, a recent news of fishermen that were in a tournament in Ohio. Maybe you saw this where there was tens of thousands of dollars to be won at this tournament. And what did they do? Evidently, I've never been to such a fishing tournament. Uh, I have a friend here, Betty Hart, who I used to go fishing on her dock. And it's a true story that this is the kind of fisherman I am that I once was sitting on her dock on a July 4th day. And as I cast the hook, got caught in my nose. So I learned to fish off of the heart's dock with bread or cheese. That's the kind of fishing I do. But these people know what they're doing. Back to the story. How are they going to win the maximum weight? Oh, some people stuff fish with actual weights. That can easily be detected. But these people, I believe, stuff the fish with other fish, with weights inside the fish. So that if you looked at it, it was like fish inside a fish. But it wasn't true. It wasn't genuine. This is what you're to do. Negatively, don't discount the Spirit. Negatively, do not trust everybody, not even your preachers. Positively, test, examine, prove. And then he says, here is a standard of authenticity. And I've given you five standards in our First John series, but here he focuses on one of them, that of doctrine, and specifically Christology. Do the teachers that we're talking about in John's days, those Gnostic weirdos, do they teach Jesus Christ is from God? That means he's divine. Do they teach that Jesus Christ came in the flesh? And in the Greek, it even means more than that. Do they teach that Jesus Christ remains in the flesh? That's classic Christology. And anything else other than that is unorthodox. Anything else other than that is of the evil one. It's a spirit of error. It's of the spirit of the Antichrist. John then wants to encourage his readers. You notice he does this all the time. He hits something hard, and then he backs away. 
So who were the bad guys last week? You guys. No, you were the good guys last week. So John is killing you, the bad guys. And then he turns around and he says, but you. It's emphatic. He starts the sentence with you. Like, I'm not talking about you people. Those people over there. That's the spirit of error, spirit of Antichrist. But you, and then what does he say? Little children, the beloved of God. You, little children, are from God. They're not from God. You're from God. He says, you, little children, have overcome them. They did everything they could over here to talk to you, to court you, to woo you. They used their big words and their cool philosophical arguments. But you didn't buy what they were selling. As a matter of fact, the Spirit had its way with you, and you understand truth. You're not impressed by their false teaching and preaching. And then he says this. There's a he. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. You have the Almighty God in the form of the Holy Spirit taking up residence. He is so powerful. Great is your security. Remember Job? You had Satan saying, I can take him down. And God says, no, I don't think so. And Satan gave it his best. He was held bound determined to take Job down, but Job would not deny him. Oh, he stumbled and he faltered and he struggled, but in the end, God had his victory because Job was that strong? No, because greater is he that was in Job than he who's in the world. How about the story of Elijah? A man on Mount Carmel, a man against the king, a man against the Jezebel queen, a man against a king and a queen and 450 priests, a man against a king, a queen, 450 priests, and the devil. And at the end of that story, you tell me who's still standing. God calls all those priests, come on over and join. They don't do so. He has his way with them. Greater is he that's in Elijah than he that's in the world. How about this Jesus at the cross thing? This is really, really good news. Over on this side we have, in this corner, the Pharisees and the Essenes, the Sadducees and the Herodians, the Romans and the priests, the elders and the scribes, the soldiers, the governors, the kings, Satan and all his demons. On this side, in this corner, Jesus the Christ. Loved by the Father, filled with the Spirit. He stood tall, but then he went to the mat. He got back up, but then he went to the mat again. Over and over he went down, and finally he went down for the count. Why? Because he chose to. He took a beating so that we as sinners wouldn't have to. But then, up from the grave, he arose. Greater is he who is in Jesus Christ than they that are in the world. There's this guy, Steve Green, who 
wrote this song. Keith Green then re-recorded this song. It's called The Victor. And I want to sing it for you. Let's just take a moment of meditation. The sermon's not over. Don't get all excited. But why don't you rejoice? Greater is he who is in Christ and he who is in you than he who is in the world. Swallowed into earth's dark womb, death has tried. That's what they say, but try to hold him in the tomb. The son of life grows on the third day. Just look. charismatic and go amen and the other half be Baptist and just yell amen. amen then at the end of the Bible the book of Revelation shows the final story where you have the Antichrist the false prophet and Satan the beasts all gathering together and it's the same story one more time this is who we have within us he who is within us is greater than he who is in the world. So this leads then to the choice. Title of the sermon. It's either the apostles or the apostate. 
the apostolic or the apostate. There's the they in the text. The they are the council of the Illuminati, the council of the Antichrist and the evil spirits and the false teachers with their false doctrine. And it says, what did they do? It says, they, they are not of God. They, they get their message from the world and they are on a pretty good ride right now. You know why? Because the world likes what they're selling, the world's buying it, and the world says, give us some more. The apostle then says, but then there's the we. And I interpret this as the apostle saying, you people have a choice. You can either listen to them or you can listen to we, the apostles and the orthodox teachers of the church. We are of God. We know God. And we are not so impressive to them, but we are always listened to by you. And that's how you know you're of the spirit of truth. So Horizon Church, what are you to do with this information? Awareness. Recognize Satan's passion, his team, and his success. He's the grand narcissist. He was the first. He's the best. He loves himself. And because of that, he hates God with all of his might. He would take him down, but he can't touch him. He would take down the son of God, but he's already lost there. He'll try some more. He's going to keep losing. He realizes, well, then I'm going after all those people made in the image of God. All men and women are hated by Satan. But especially, man, you can just... His mouth starts drooling. Gets all jittery and excited when he thinks, I can take out people who are the bride of Christ, the children of God. And Satan has his team. He has his people. Some of them are spiritual. And some of them are temporal. His team includes parents who refuse to bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, who bypass the church, biblical discipleship, and ignorantly turn over their precious children to the crap of culture. Parents who prioritize material and temporal gain more than anything, and some who are so disenchanted with some church environment in the past where they've been harmed that they'll do anything they can to get their children graduated beyond the foolishness of the gospel. Satan's team includes teachers. Yes, throughout the land there are many missionaries who see it as their vocation and worship to partner with parents in making disciples of the next generation. However, Satan has many teachers who are hell-bent to sculpt students in ethical relativism, mystic spiritism, ethnic racism, state worship, and hedonism. Parents, do not be fooled. Certain elementary teachers and college professors have your children for more hours than you do, and they can't wait to get their hands on your children. Satan's team includes counselors and psychologists in the church and outside the church, wicked men and women ready to discount scripture and debunk sin that will encourage any sort of gender exploration, sexual experimentation, 
Self-control is now pitied as you're included to be free and be whatever your heart tells you to be. Ultimately, they tell you, you are the true north in deciding that which is right for you. Scientists should love their trade and practice the scientific method. They should be delighted to study the mysteries of the universe and be duly educated by both God's general and special revelation. In doing so, they will not find discrepancy, but harmony. However, many scientists allow their preferred personal ethical views to unduly influence their findings. They then present twisted interpretations of God's general and special revelation, perhaps most notably in the areas of Darwinian evolution, or we can actually save the planet. Certain doctors are ready to discount human life in the womb, or at the end of days when you're deemed no longer socially profitable. And some are ready to apply their knowledge and skill to those with gender dysphoria and use their trade to commit abuse in chemical or surgical methods. News commentators are ready to call that which is evil good and that which is good evil. Entertainers are more than willing to use all your money and their influence to weigh in on all of their topics that are important to them. Producers are busy making films encouraging hedonism, materialism, and the enchantment with the dark side. Disney has Little Demon ready for you. Netflix has The Devil in Ohio. Satan is pleased as he sees corporate executives carrying their weight in the name of science, truth, love, and inclusivity, those who, while those who share God's biblical views on marriage, gender, and sexuality are mocked, called liars, hated, and counseled. Then there is the work of certain executives, legislators, and judges throughout the land that you help put in office. Many are doing their best to limit freedom of speech about God and His ways and the practice of religion. How busy they are in flexing their muscle to redefine morality, marriage, and the family. When one goes to Barnes & Noble or Amazon, one finds a, a whole team of Satan's friends in the form of authors who contribute to his cause. Dan Brown and Oprah Winfrey have done much to harm those in search of spiritual truth. And then there's the social media platform which informs you as much as anything else in your life. Then there are religious leaders of another brand, those who look moral but present a different Christology than what you see here and a different gospel. Now, some of them are easily discernible and despicable, men like Jim Jones and Islamic jihadists, but some of them are as winsome, kind as Gandhi, the Dalai Lama, Deepak Chopra, Mormon elders, and Jehovah's Witnesses. And then we have preachers. Liberals who disbelieve the Bible, who believe it's corrupted and fictitious and can't be trusted to present God's transcultural principles in our cultural land. Universalists who disregard clear teaching of Scripture and say somehow everybody's making it in heaven. The licentious who discount the Spirit's sweet work of progressive sanctification. 
legalists who do the exact opposite and say your works either before salvation, during salvation, or after salvation contribute at all to your relationship with God. There are spiritists who promote odd sensations like a second blessing. They assume the Holy Spirit gives all people the same gift. For them, one must experience the extraordinary in order to be found on the higher plane of spirituality. There are the profiteers, which are on all day long on TV today. There are the charlatans working the crowd in order for them to name and claim your wealth as their own. And then there's the cruise ship directors. This is my temptation. We are people who will do anything to keep the party going, to keep the ship on calm waters. We pretend we're mostly interested in our consumers, but really, it serves us well to keep everything nice and clean and happy. We are mostly interested in attracting producing, entertaining, and massaging our customers. We're not so excited to engage at the personal level. We like to keep our own dirty laundry hidden. The institution must grow. The show must go on. Satan and his team are wildly successful. The God of this world has blinded the eyes of many I could read to you Romans chapter 1. I'll just leave that to you and your small groups for you to see how successful is Satan's campaign. But friends, that's not us. We're aware of this, and now we stand in awe that in the midst of this whole generation of people who are being impressed by all that the world has to offer, here you are. You're here. You're sitting under the Word of God, and many of you are going somewhere else tonight. Why? Don't take credit for it. Be humble. You're here, you're listening, and you're not offended by this message because the Spirit is working in you and He's doing in you that really good work. And so don't stand there arrogantly, but stand there in awe. Wow, this is absolutely incredible that the Holy Spirit gives us such security. How happy we can be. How intelligent we can be. How can this be? We sit there in awe. Thirdly, and now we find ourselves with a new appetite. Satan is still coming at you, and he wants to twist your minds. And so to be healthy, one must what? One must stop eating that which is unhealthy. But that's not enough either. One must start eating that which is healthy. In the words of Paul, one must put off certain things. One must put on certain things. Less banana splits, more broccoli. Less theological junk, less news reporting, less friends' posts on Facebook and Instagram, more Bible, more teachers, more podcasts. More hymns and songs. We need to feast and we need to diet. This is what I think Paul is calling you to do as you are to not swallow everything, but you're to be like the noble Bereans in the book of Acts. 
who took everything and ran it through the lens of God's word to say, how does this measure up? Then finally, the big payoff, I think, ambition. Remembering our mission, our possession, and our assured victory, we commit to loving our God, our family, our church family, and our neighbors. So what's our mission? We exist for a few more years or decades on this planet to make disciples. That's, that's what we do. We can enjoy God. We can evangelize. But evangelize is not making disciples. That's the first step of a larger process called making of disciples. This is what we do. God likes worshipers, and he wants more of them. He's going to get all that he wants, and he's going to use people like you and me to go get them. So this is our purpose. This is why we exist. This is our vocation. Now, where we do our vocation, whether you're in the public school or a doctor or whether you're a homemaker, wherever you are, that's your sphere of service as you get ready to make disciples. What is our power? The Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that's in Christ is in us. And so what's our attitude? Will we really walk about like defeated individuals, ashamed, disbelieving, anxious, and depressed? As if God's fallen off his throne and bumped his head. No one could put him back together again. Will we despair? Will we throw in the towel? Will we cry uncle? Will we give up? Will we be shy and quiet and forced back into our Christian closet of sorts? No way. Look, the gates of hell are crumbling. Jesus Christ is victorious. He's going to get all the elect, and he's going to use us. And when he's done getting that final person, the world's over. But he's winning. Oh, I know it hurts. I know we suffer losses. But why be shy? So what do we do? We pledge to love our family. We make disciples of our own children and our grandchildren. We read them the scriptures. We sing them the songs as we drive along the way. We safeguard their minds from the teaching of antichrists. We take advantage of the church community and our programs, and we never shop so, stop showing grace to our prodigal children by calling them home. That's what we do, because we love our family, and the gates of hell want them. The forces of darkness want them. Children... Uh, the prince of demon who has unholy spirits dressed as ministers of the gospel are trying to get them. But no way, not on our watch. And then what do we do as a church family here? We do what's found in Acts chapter 20, paying careful attention to ourselves and the flock. And so what do I know? I know this. I am more than ever committed to preaching God's word Gordon is likewise ready to give it to your children straight and clear. Shelley is re legendary in this regard, and our elders are doing everything they can to provide you the resources you need in small groups, in Sunday school, in buying of books, or in their personal time. Oh, man, we're ambitious for our family, and we're ambitious here. Then what do we do in our community? I wrote this paragraph down. I want to read it, and we're almost done. Some of you may not need to repent. But some of you may need to join me in my repentance. I wish to confess my sin of uncharitable passivity and self-love. 
in a desire to worship Christ by building his church and minister to my community by not causing unnecessary offense, I think I have been charitably passive, I mean uncharitably passive and obscure. While seeking to be winsome, I have not presented sin as ugly and clearly as I ought. While seeking to be nonpartisan, I have not preached on morality as I ought. I will not apologize for being nonpartisan. I'm apologizing for not preaching clearly enough about morality. In the words of Eric Metaxas, I've made an idol out of evangelism. It has become not just an important thing, but almost the only thing in my life. So I will not slow down in my desire to be evangelistic, but I must be a spokesman for the Lord and a presenter of His Word, and I must cut it straight without ambiguity, with grace, but with clarity. And in the process, I will be used of God, but I will be abused by the world and the church. And I'm ready. God's done something in my heart. Bring it on. It's God's Word. What does He have to say? I must be more faithful to my Christ, to His Word, than to you. And those in the community who are living foolishly in this life, which is followed by hell, need to have it straightly presented to them. And so perhaps you need to be a better steward of God's truth and more charitable to your neighbors as well. Have a greater love for God and others than you do yourself. Understand what is required of stewardship. Understand what's required of charity. And then with unflinching love, Stand without fear and speak the truth in love. Risk ease, promotions, relationships, vocations, finances. Faithfully present God's truth. Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. Show love in deeds. Show your love to your community in your words. Show your love to your community in your voting. In eight days, by your activity or your inactivity, you will show your love and your commitment to your fellow neighbors. You'll either contribute to the trajectory of the spirit of truth or of the spirit of error. Your activity or your inactivity contributes to something somewhere. There's no need to stop protecting your neighbors, defending your neighbors using your God-given wisdom to pursue for them that which the Spirit says is right through His Word. There's no need to stop evangelizing. There's no need to expect victory in every battle. There's no need to expect suffering to cease. But there's no way you're going to lose the war. Greater is He that's in us than he that's in the world.